Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. How much do you know about World War II history, Grand Teton National Park, and the evolution of outdoor recreation in the United States? Believe it or not, they're all intertwined. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. 90-pound rucksack is a podcast about the U.S. Army's legendary 10th Mountain Division and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. Hosted by veteran alpinist and climbing historian Christian Beckwith, 90-pound rucksack examines the stories that made the unit legendary, as well as those that history has forgotten. The tale of the 10th Mountain Division, a gritty unit of World War II climbers and skiers, who trained for more than two years high in the Colorado Rockies to fight the Axis powers in extreme cold and mountainous terrain, is famous for good reason. Not only did its insertion into the war help end Germany's occupation of Italy, but post-war, its surviving members helped found and develop ski areas across America, started organizations such as the National Outdoor Leadership School, and played a role in the fields of avalanche science and wilderness rescue. Equal parts real-time research, intimate conversation, and revelatory journalism, 90-pound rucksack explores not only the conventional wisdom about the 10th mountain, but the transformative power of the mountains to forge a collective identity among the mountain troops, and to ignite a passion for the outdoors that reshaped American society in the process. We'll be back in a minute with Christian to go through some of that history. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Christian. Thank you for having me. So, U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division, 90-pound rucksack. What's the connection between those two terms? Oh, there's quite a, um, quite a strong connection, actually. The 90 pounds in their rucksacks were what the troops trained with when they were at Fort Lewis on the flanks of Mount Rainier and Rainier National Park, and then at Camp Hale, which is now a national monument down in Colorado. And I got into it, um, sort of stumbled into it backward. I am a, a climber and alpinist, and I'd been in print for many years. I was editor of the American Alpine Journal, and I started Alpinist Magazine. And I live in the Tetons, so I was writing a history of climbing here in the Tetons, and I transcribed all the summit registers so I could get a sense of the ecosystem of who was climbing, who they were climbing with, what they were climbing. 
I'm sorry, the, the, you, you transcribed the summit registers. So the entries in the summit registers, um, I transcribed all of those from in particular the, the, um, the, T, the cathedral group. So that's the central, those are the central peaks in the Teton range. The okay, Grand, so the, the middle of the South, neighbor say to you and not, not knowing. And I got to 1941 and there was an entry by Joe and Paul Stettner, two German emigres, brothers from Munich who'd come here in 1927 and had brought all they'd learned in Germany with them to bear on the climbing in the United States, had left an entry in the Grand Teton Summit Register. The next entry in the Summit Register of the Grand was September 10th, 1945, by Paul Stettner. There were no entries in between. And so I was writing a history of climbing in the Tetons and my direct research came to a screeching halt because there was no climbing here. And I had heard about the 10th Mountain Division. I knew that a lot of climbers and skiers had gone into it. And so I started doing research on that. And the idea at the time was to tell the story of the 10th Mountain Division from the perspective of Teton climbers, to show how Teton climbers had helped to influence the division's evolution. And then also to show how the division had influenced Teton climbing after the war. And I figured out a way to tell every single element of the story with the exception of one part. And this was the most significant action of the 10th Mountain Division when it actually deployed to Italy in January of 1945. And that was the taking of River Ridge. And I looked and I looked and I could not find a single Teton climber who was involved in that action. And then I was reading over a military history of the unit and I came across a name of a fellow who had put up the hardest route of the four routes on Reaver Ridge and had led his company up it on the evening of February 18th and 19th to take the Germans on top without a casualty. And his name was John McCown. And when I read that in the military history, a light bulb went off and I went back through the summit register entries. And lo and behold, in 1939, there was John McCown all over the place. Hmm. And in 1940, he was back and he was climbing things that were remarkable for the day. And I'd found my way to tell the story of the Tetons and the 10th Mountain Division in a mashup. So I started to do so and I started to do more research the same way that I had been doing it all along, which was beginning with the 1946 American Alpine Journal War Edition. So this was a special edition written by America's climbers on their contributions to the war effort. And that was my first stop because that's what I've been using for all my research as the first stop of my research on the history of climbing in the Tetons. And in it, I found all these stories about how the climbers, American climbers had contributed to the gear and the clothing and the handbooks for the war manual and contributed to the actual events that transpired both in Camp Hill as instructors, but then also in Italy. And um, it was a remarkable contribution by America's climbers to the war effort. But then when I went to the civilian accounts of the 10th Mountain Division, what I was really surprised by was that there was a different story. And this was the common story for the 10th Mountain Division. And that story was one of the skiers of America. So this is a fellow named Charles Minot Dole who in 1938 had founded the National Ski Patrol System. And in February of 1940, he and three of his friends are sitting around an inn 
in uh, Vermont talking about the Soviet invasion of Finland, which had taken place on November 30th, 1939. And what was remarkable about that invasion was that much like the invasion that's going on now, the Russians intended to just come in and roll over the woefully outnumbered Finnish troops all the way to Helsinki in time to celebrate Stalin's birthday. So they brought a brass band with them as they came rolling across the border. And what happened instead was the Finns, who were remarkably adept at navigating their landscape in winter as well as summer, and had a profound tradition of outdoor recreation, hunting and skiing in winter um, throughout the country, they stymied the Soviet advance by donning white camo and on cross-country skis and even on skates, moving in stealthily through the forests and doing things like breaking up the Soviet armored divisions into what they called Mahdi, which is a, um, it's a measure of firewood. So they would break up these long divisions into smaller sections, and then they would proceed to take them out. And so case in point was a Finnish, um, a rural Finnish resident named Simo Heha, who was completely self-reliant um, in all conditions and was given, joined up with the, the Finnish army, was given the standard rifle without a, without a scope and managed to take out 500 Soviet soldiers, Russian soldiers over the course of four months. He's the uh, most successful sniper in military history. And this was because he knew how to navigate in the depths of winter on these cross-country skis in full camo. And so all of this played out in America in the newsreels that played before movies. And so Americans were going to the, to the movie theater and they were watching the news of the Soviet invasion and how these Finnish troops were holding them off on their cross-country skis. And so Minnie Dole and his mates had watched these movies as well. And they were talking in probably the Orvis Inn, maybe Johnny Seesaws after a race at Bromley Mountain about how if Germany, which at that point was beginning to roll in Europe, invaded North America, they would come in through Canada and then roll down the Champlain Valley, which historically is how um, the U.S. has been invaded. And who in New was England. going to, in New England. Yeah, Vermont, and, who, and who was going to, in between, yeah, New England, uh, Vermont and New York. Who would defend the border? Who would be there to stop them? America at that point was very much a flatland unit. We hadn't updated our manuals for cold weather fighting since 1914. We had 200,000 soldiers and eight divisions. Germany, by contrast, had three mountain divisions alone in 1939. And so to Minnie Dole and his, his friends, the idea was, the solution was obvious. Let's take this network we've just built which has 4,000 skiers, this is the National Ski Patrol system, activate it as a defense mechanism, as a defensive force on the northern borders and offer this to the War Department. And so that's what they did. And this is the popular story about the origin of the 10th Mountain Division, that Minnie Dole and his mates essentially wore down the War Department in their lobbying efforts and convinced them to start a mountain unit of our own. And it's true to a very large extent, except what I also found by first by reading that 1946 war edition of the American Alpine Journal is that America's climbers were a big part of the inception of the division as well. And in particular, my predecessor at the American Alpine Journal, H. Adams Carter, had been climbing with another of the Harvard Five, the group that brought American climbing to the fore in the 1930s. 
And um, his name was Bob Bates. He'd been part of the 1938 American K-2 expedition that had achieved a higher altitude than anybody had ever reached before. They were in Switzerland in 1939. They observed the maneuvers of the Swiss mountain troops. And they said, oh, well, maybe we need one of those <laughs> ourselves. And so they came home. And like Minnie Dole and his mates, they were well-connected. They had um, a network that extended all the way up to George Marshall and Henry Stimson who became Secretary of War in June of 1940. And they began leveraging their connections to advocate for the creation of a mountain unit as well. The difference was that Minnie Dole's vision for the mountain division was one based on the, so on the Finnish resistance. So this is cross-country skiers in winter defending the, the mountainous and, and uh, northern reaches. And what H. Adams Carter and Bob Bates, and then increasingly other members of the American Alpine Club envisioned was a force more along the lines of what had happened in the Alpine Front during World War I. So this is the Italian Front where the Germans and the Austrians and the Italians had fought. And there'd been as many troops engaged in that front as in the Western Front. And it had been disastrous in particular for the um, Italians and the Austrians more than 60,000 troops had been lost in the, the mountains of Italy during World War I. Um, there was, I think 10,000 people were killed on December 16th, 1918 as part of a White Monday, they called it, by avalanches alone. And so the, our adversaries in World War II had direct experience in mountain warfare in World War I. And then they'd also, begun to become active in the mountains in World War II as well. So there was an invasion of Norway by Germany in 19, April 1940, in which the German mountain troops took a port town called Narvik in the northern reaches of Norway in order to preserve the iron ore that was being shipped in by train from Sweden. This was a vital material for the war effort. And so British and French forces retook the port town and drove those mountain troops up into the mountains. They had 2,600 sailors with them at the same time, but they managed to hold off five times their force for four months before the allied loss of France forced the retreat of the British and French forces. And to Germany in particular, that was a victory of the German mountain troops and it emphasized their importance and American war planners took note. And then in October of 1940, when the Italians tried to invade Greece, they got driven back into the Albanian mountains by the, by the Greeks and they proceeded to suffer catastrophic losses. And so suddenly the war department, as they're looking at this need for troops is seeing not a need for the Finnish type soldiers on skis in white camel, but on a unit that could fight in mountainous and cold weather conditions, wherever the need might arise. And so suddenly the American Alpine Club's offer of help began to look a lot more interesting and a lot more compelling. So the, the origin myth of the 10th Mountain Division as a ski troop is based in fact, but there is a nuance to that story that hadn't been told. And that's where I really got interested and engaged. We're talking today with Christian Beckwith, a veteran alpinist and climber who is working on a history of the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division and the role that climbers from the Tetons played in making it happen. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. 
Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, has given away over 2 million nickels since they started their nickel back program on their checking accounts. Learn how you can earn a nickel on your signature-based transactions at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Okay, we're back talking with Christian Beckwith, a veteran alpinist and climber and a historian who's been researching the 10th Mountain Division. He has a podcast discussing what he's found, 90-pound rucksack. Um, Christian, I'm I'm wondering, the the formation of the 10th Mountain Division, did it start out with climbers from the, the Tetons who were experienced in, you know, climbing in rough winter conditions? It did. The Tetons in the 1930s had really emerged as America's, the Grand was America's Matterhorn. So if you were a climber in the United States that was interested in mountaineering, you came here to try the Grand. And um, a number of the people that came here to climb in the Tetons quickly became instrumental to the evolution of the 10th Mountain Division, both as soldiers and instructors, but then very importantly as the um, the inventors and the, what would you call them? These were the people that became parts of the committees and the working groups that were focused on all the things that we did not have that we needed to have to fight in the mountains. And so in December of 1940, Colonel Harry Twaddle wrote to the American Alpine Club and said, I would like to know where to find the following 21 items where, who manufactures these items, where might we buy them? How many items, how many of each item would we need to equip a full mountain division? And um, what would the price be? And you can just imagine the American Alpine Club writing back and, and saying, my dear Colonel Twaddle, we regret to inform you that every single item you've requested information about is currently manufactured exclusively in Germany, Austria, or Italy. And so we really not only had no precedent for a mountain unit in the United States as we entered World War One or World War II, but we also had no clothing, no gear, and no instruction, no handbooks for how to climb in the mountains. Everything had come out of Europe. So this is where the, the climbers really came into their own. And they were people like H. Adams Carter who I mentioned was in Switzerland with Bob Bates when they observed the maneuvers of the Swiss mountain troops. So Ad was a polyglot and he spoke uh, Spanish and French and Italian and German. And he began to identify, procure and translate the war manuals from the Swiss, German, French, Austrian and Italian mountain troops. And those quickly became the basis for the war department's instructional manuals on how to fight 
in the mountains. Bob Bates went into the Quartermaster Corps, which is responsible for equipping the entire army with everything you need to fight a war, and began to work on the gear and the clothing that we simply didn't have as, <laughs> as a country with a very limited mountain culture. And so both of those guys had climbed in the Tetons, which is you know part of what I was following was by transcribing the summit register entries, I was seeing when they were here and who they were climbing with. They were climbing with, and among other people, a fellow named Paul Petzl. So sure. he had been one of the um, earliest climbers here in the Tetons, got here in 1924 as a 16-year-old. How he managed to live, I have no idea, because he jumped, his very first route attempt was on the east ridge of the Grand, which was unclimbed. He tried it in cowboy boots and uh, bib overalls. It was a warm day, so they brought nothing else. And then they proceeded to get hit by a summer blizzard that just about killed them. They would have died if they'd known that hypothermia was a word. Yeah. And so Petzold had been brought on that K2 expedition with Charlie Houston and Bob Bates, and he had actually achieved the highest altitude that anybody had ever reached at that point. And so he got pulled into the war effort as well. Um, he became an instructor at this base this high altitude base in the Colorado Rockies that came to be known as Camp Hale. And so this was between Leadville and Minturn, Colorado, and Paul Petzl was put in charge of the mountain rescue evacuation procedures. So I'm wondering, what, what was their motivation? I mean, were they, were they you know, American patriots? Were they concerned about, um, you know, countries in, in Europe being overrun? What, what made them get involved with the war effort? It's so interesting to look at this from the perspective of today where it feels sometimes that the country is just broken into two very distinct camps and ideologies rule the, the day. What I've, what I've been so impressed by when I've been doing this research is that this patriotic response, and this came from all the climbers and all the skiers. How do we help our country? What can we do to be of service? And as this mountain division began to gain momentum, in 1940 and then more so in 1941 as the first its first incarnation took form at a place called fort lewis in washington and then over the course of the winter on uh, the flanks of mount rainier in particular in two lodges that had been rented from the national park service for these ski troops to begin to train the skiers and climbers went into the 10th Mountain Division. They wanted to be part of the war effort. They wanted to help their country. And the best way to do so was to join this new unit that was beginning to get really famous. And so I did an episode on the history of skiing in America before the war, looking at how it had evolved, in particular in the 30s. It had exploded in popularity because of the advent of rope toes, which made it a lot easier than walking up and skiing down and snow trains, which were a depression era response to a way to save the railroads from going bankrupt. And so skiing had become incredibly popular and there were uh, somewhere between one and 3 million skiers before the war. Hmm. And um, as a result, the national media had picked up on how sexy skiing was and it was glamorous and you can get a you know, one of the ads that they used for the snow trains was the suntan special. So if you're stuck in Boston on another dreary weekend, you could jump on the Boston and Maine and go up to New Hampshire and get a tan and a stem turn in all in the same weekend. And so it began, skiing had become to, begun to become very um, glamorous. 
and had begun to occupy um, real estate and the American imagination. And so when all of a sudden we're at war, which is not a glamorous activity, it's not a glamorous thing at all, the mountain troops, the so-called mountain troops, became something to focus on that were a point of national pride. And that was sexy. And it helped, you know, from General Marshall's perspective, it helped with recruitment and it helped with morale. And for America's climbers and skiers to be part of the war effort by climbing and skiing had a certain ring to it. And so they signed up and they became part of this unit that first trained in Washington and then in 1942 moved to a new newly constructed base at Camp Hale. And for over the course of around three years, they trained like no troop had ever trained before. And they became incredibly fit and so fit that they were able to ski with 90 pound rucksacks on their backs, which, and anybody who's a backcountry skier who's ever skied with a pack knows you want as little weight as possible in on your back when you're skiing. These guys had everything under the sun plus a rifle. And so they had to modify the entire technique of skiing just to stay upright. And then you just have to imagine they're on seven foot hickory skis with leather boots and Kandahar bindings. <laughs> the fact that they could stay upright is absolutely remarkable to me. But for America's climbers and skiers, this was an opportunity to serve doing what they love to do best, and that's climbing and skiing. Yeah, we're we're gonna get into that ninety pound rucksack. I'm curious if this was a, a brand new division for the Army, uh, a brand new technique for waging war on skis in the mountains, and and they they relied on these this group of climbers. Who was put in charge of the 10th Mountain Division? Did they, did they pluck one of the climbers and say, all right, you're now a captain in the U.S. Army and we want you to develop this program and implement this program? The complexity of this story has my head wrapped into so many twists and turns that I can barely see straight when I get up in the morning. It's remarkably complicated. And there was no single person that was in charge of it, with the exception of perhaps General Marshall. General George Marshall, and his mandate was to take that fighting force of of 200,000 soldiers in eight divisions before the war up to 215 divisions and 8.8 million soldiers by 1943. That was part of the victory program, which was the plan developed to defeat Germany. What What we realized we had to do was ramp up with a speed that's unprecedented in the history of the species. And so the complexity in ramping that up included not only just sheer manpower, how do you get up from the world's 17th largest army just behind Romania to an army that can actually defeat Hitler, who at this point is rolling over Europe, uh, looks, he looks unstoppable. And the Nazis are winning every battle that they enter. How do you do that? Um, General Marshall handpicked General Leslie McNair to build out that army. And when Leslie McNair was looking at it, his solution was take the Henry Ford approach, make everything exactly the same with a couple of little tweaks here and there, because then you can actually ramp up. You can scale up to a degree necessary to reach the, the numbers mandated by the victory program. So the idea of a specialized unit was irrational. It made absolutely no sense whatsoever. 
add in the fact that we had no precedent for a mountain unit, we had no training for a mountain unit, all our forces had, you know, they'd trained in places like Georgia and Texas and the Philippines. So they're all tropical <laughs> troops. The fact that this actually came to be boggles my mind because the forces against it and the rationale against it um, were insurmountable, practically insurmountable. But as the war continued to proceed on Europe and as we got closer and closer to entry and we watched things like that Italian invasion of Greece go horribly awry, the argument for a specialized mountain unit began to make more and more sense. And so the people that were in charge of it, um, they changed from, you know, in the military hierarchy. And this is just part of the military's, um, the way of doing things. The positions remain, but the people cycle through. But one of the reasons that there was a lot of resistance to the division within the military was that all the talent was in the ranks. You don't learn to climb and ski at West Point. You learn to climb and ski in the Tetons. And so you had these civilian climbers and skiers coming into a military division. They had all the institutional knowledge, but they were trying to fit within the regimented um, hierarchy of, of the military. That created incredible tension. The whole idea of a civilian-led division created a lot of disconnect, confusion, at the same time that we are ramping up like we've never ramped up before in the history of the country. Everything is moving so quickly. And this division was trying to learn on the fly. So even the people like uh, Colonel um, Onslow Rolf, who was put in charge of the 87th, which was the division's first incarnation on the flanks of Mount Rainier, they were trying to figure out, do we need a ski troop? Do we need a mountain troop? To a lot of the folks in the War Department that were behind this, we needed mountain troops, not just ski troops. We needed people that could operate in cold weather and mountain environments in summer as well as winter. But how to get there was a source of great debate, and it just created a lot of tension. And with that tension came obstructionism, outright obstructionism from within the War Department. And with that, morale went up and down within the mountain troops. And so one of the things that, and it seems so simple, but one of the things that was a point of great contention within the mountain unit was the fact that they had no badge to indicate their specialized training that they just spent all these years doing. They had, you know, if you're a cook, you've got a special distinction in the army, but the mountain troops had nothing. And so all of this played out over the course of those, that first year at Fort Lewis out of Washington on the flanks of Mount Rainier into the two and a half years at Camp Hale, as they continued to train, they continued to get increasingly fit and they develop the fitness of mountain athletes. And that's both a physical fitness that allows you to go out for days at a time in sub-zero temperatures and execute long and hard objectives for hours at a stretch. Um, but also that psychological capacity to compartmentalize fear when you're executing these objectives that are inherently dangerous and objectively dangerous. So they were developing that kind of fitness. They were also developing what in climbing we call the fellowship of the rope. And that is this incredible relationship that is so singular that is a result of the fact that you depend on your partner for your own safety and your partner depends on you in a similar way. And when you go out into the mountains again and again and again with partners who have your back like that, 
you develop something that is, it's really difficult to find this anywhere else. And it's an incredibly important component of what we love to do as climbers and skiers and what the mountain troops developed during all these years of training. But morale was going up and down. Their training was getting better. Hollywood's coming in and making movies about them. They're on the covers of Life magazine. They're getting famous. This creates resentment within the War Department for these ski troopers, you know, because Hollywood focused on the skiing because it's a lot sexier than watching somebody climb. And so all of this was part of this convoluted evolution that was accelerating as it was moving closer and closer to the end of the war. Problematically, the 10th Mountain Division was stuck in Camp Hale because nobody could find the right objective for them in the war, in part because they had a contingent of mules that were necessary for them to move the heavy equipment and, um, and artillery that were part of their infantry. And so, for example, the 75 millimeter pack howitzer weighed 1200 pounds and it could be broken down into six different compartment loads, but that took six mules. And that doesn't include the ammo for the 75 millimeter pack howitzer. So how are you going to deploy a unit to Europe when you also have to ship all specialized equipment and the mules necessary to carry all that specialized equipment? So, so they so languished. The 10th Mountain was expected to take all that gear with them, 75 millimeter? That, well, that's the goal. I mean, you go, with your, you go with your weapons, right? Well, yeah. What happened was toward the end of 1944, the planners in the War Department who had resisted this idea of a specialized unit, they won. And the Mountain Unit, the Mountain Division, was shipped to Camp Swift, Texas, where it was to become just like every other flatland unit. And so all these mountain troops who had trained for two years in the mountains of Colorado were suddenly in a place where everything wanted to either bite them or sting them. And it was hot as could be. And their morale went into the toilet, absolutely went into the toilet. And people began jumping ship, trying to go into other units. That was probably one of the lowest low points for the division. But then a couple of things happened. In Italy, Hitler had used this series of mountain summits and ridges in Italy's Apennines to divert allied forces from deploying to the fronts in France that would have hastened the end of the war. And this line in the Apennines was called the Gothic Line. And the US Army's Fifth Army had spent 500 days trying to take it without success. And so General Marshall, 500. So General Marshall was looking at this and he said, well, if anybody can do this, it's going to be the Mountain Division. And so on Thanksgiving Day, 1944, a few things happened. They got a badge, their very distinctive 10th Mountain Division badge, and that helped morale tremendously. They got a new commanding officer, General Hayes, who replaced General Lloyd, who they didn't like. And General Hayes had been a um, Congressional Medal of honor winner in World War I, he'd had seven horses shot out from underneath him while he was running communications behind enemy lines after the lines had been cut by the enemy. And he had just gotten back from the invasion of Normandy. And so he got the mountain troops and he saw this collection of folks who were more incredibly fit psychologically as well as physically than any mountain, that any unit he'd ever seen before. And 
when he stepped in, the morale rose that much higher. And then they got the orders. It was time to deploy. And they were going to Italy to break Hitler's Gothic line. And that's when the, the morale really hit a high point. And so in, at the end of December 1944 and into the early days of January 1945, 13,126 mountain troops sailed across the ocean to Naples, Italy, where they began to become, for the first time, active participants in World War II. This is Kurt Repinchuk. We're talking today with Christian Beckwith about the 10th Mountain Division, the origins of it, and um, its connection to national parks prior to World War II, and uh, their role in national parks and outdoor recreation after World War II. We'll be back in a minute. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PotreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O Group. Com. Okay, we're back with Christian. Christian, I'm wondering, um, your your podcast is called the 90 Pound Rucksack. Um, you'd mentioned that you know that was uh, the the backpack that these 10th Mountain Division guys were were carrying around um, on skis and whatnot. What was in this 90 Pound Rucksack? Do you actually want a breakdown of every single thing that was in it? Because well, I've got it. I mean, you know, I I backpack or I used to backpack, and I'd have a 30 pound backpack and you know you'd have your sleeping bag and maybe a small tent and change or two of clothes and some food and a stove and that was 30 pounds i mean what what we got to add up to 90 pounds boy john jay who wrote a history of the mountain training center which was the what the overall effort to develop this mountain unit was called actually broke down everything that was in that pack and I'm looking for it on my, uh, my screen right now. I could give you a breakdown of every single item and its weight, but it included things like their all their clothing, of course, but then also their rations and their ammo and their rifles and their sleeping bags, which are not the same weight as the sleeping bags that we have today definitely and, and their tents which are not the same weight as the tents that we have today and add it all up it came to just under 84 pounds 
And this was before you included some of the other things like the sidearms and the, uh, the helmets and all the other elements that were necessary for going into battle. So these packs were filled. And I was actually just in Fort Drum, New York, where I was giving a presentation to the 18th Airborne Corps Leadership Forum. And there was a, they had a, um, an abbreviated D-series. And the D-series was this famous chapter in the 10th Mountain Division's history where the brass forced them to go into the mountains of Colorado for two weeks in March of 1944 and take these 13,000 foot summits and hold them against simulated counterattacks. And unfortunately that coincided with eight feet of snow and blizzards and temps to 30 below. And so they were suffering from frostbite and um, it became one of the most, um, one of the toughest divisional training exercises in army history. And so I was out at Fort Drum and we did this little abbreviated version of it with, with the generals, which was absolutely surreal for me. And they had, they were all carrying, I just had my little Alpine <laughs> rucksack because that's, I don't want to carry a lot of weight in the mountains. I can, you know, it's just too, too much work. And so their packs included a lot of these materials and they were running around with 45 pounds on their packs. And that's with the modern equipment, but with the equipment of the 1940s, you can see how it quickly gets up to 90 pounds. And the only way that you're able to actually move effectively and efficiently over technical terrain with that kind of weight on your back is by achieving a level of physical fitness that was unprecedented in army military history. Yeah. I'm wondering, I mean, were these guys uh Superman? I mean, over, over the decades, you know, we've gotten larger. I mean, you know, I'm peaked out at six foot one and, you know, 190 pounds. My, my dad never got more than five ten or so. And he, he fought in world war two. And so, I mean, these guys must've been almost superhuman from their training to, to endure those wintry conditions and haul a 90 pound pack on their back. They were. And I think, you know, if you're a climber, in particular, a, um, an alpinist or, or a mountaineer or a ski mountaineer, you understand the level of fitness, and that's both a physical and a psychological fitness, that's necessary to go out on these, these missions, as, as we call them, that last, like last weekend, I did uh, a 12-hour tour across Jenny Lake, up this peak called Bivouac Peak, got hit by a storm at the top, you know, skied out of there with our tails between our legs, hit a wrap where our rope wasn't long enough. We had to figure out some way to extend the rope and then get down to the lake where it took us another seven hours back across the lake as twilight hit and the storm wiped out our incoming path. So we had no idea where we were. And so if you repeat that day after day, after day, after day, after month, after months, after years, the way that these guys did, you achieve a level of fitness that you need to walk around with these sorts of packs on your backs. And that's what they did. Just amazing. And so when they hit Italy and they hit this Gothic line and they came up against what had stymied the US Army's fifth army, they had finally found their mission. And so the way to break the Gothic line was to take this peak called Mount Belvedere. And Mount Belvedere was kind of a rolling type hill. It looked like something out of, um, out of the New England hills more than something from the Western landscape. But what was important to know about Mount Belvedere was that there was a, an escarpment just to its west that was around seven kilometers long that was called Reaver Ridge. And what Reaver Ridge did, it was higher and more precipitous on the eastern flank, 
it provided a line of observation that was unparalleled. So that clear line of sight for the Germans on top allowed them to push back all the attacks that the U.S. Army was able to throw at taking Mount Belvedere. And the thing about Riva Ridge was on the western flanks, it was gentle enough that the Germans could drive up to resupply the troops on top. But the eastern flanks were so precipitous that the Germans barely guarded them because they considered them impossible for an army unit to climb. So there was no, they had no concerns about that. And so when the 10th Mountain Division got the call and they got to Italy and they got into the Apennines, they began to reconnoiter these flanks of Riva Ridge to find the routes on them that they could climb under cover of darkness in February, on February 18th and 19th, 1945, when there's six feet of snow on the ground, reaching the top before dawn to take the Germans by surprise. And the person that reconnoitered those four routes was a fellow named John McCown. And this was the fellow that I had found in the summit registers where he'd been learning to climb in the Tetons in 1939 and 1940. Then he'd become an instructor at Camp Hale. He'd also been an instructor at Seneca Rocks, which was another one of the locations for the army to train multiple soldiers from many different divisions in tactical climbing and fighting. And that's in West Virginia. And that's in West Virginia. And so what John did was under the cover of darkness over a, a number of weeks, he reconned all these routes. And there were five of them initially. They eventually used four. They all embarked, these 700 soldiers embarked on the same night at the same time. And John led the hardest route. And it was to a summit called Monte Saracicha. And to get his troops up it, he had to fix six pitches over these steep limestone and shale steps. And so these soldiers climbed River Ridge at night as silently as they could in a thick fog, reached the summit. And at dawn, when the Germans came wandering out of there, where they'd been sleeping on the downside of the ridge, they didn't even know they were waving at the, at the Americans because they figured they were Germans because it was impossible to climb River Ridge. That was what they'd always believed. And the Americans took the ridge without a casualty. And that opened the possibility for an offensive the next day on Mount Belvedere that succeeded. And when I say it succeeded, I mean, the 10th Mountain Division was able to take Mount Belvedere, but at incredible cost because the element of surprise was gone. And they lost incredible numbers of, of troops um, over the course of the next four months as they proceeded to roll over the Germans like a tsunami. And I, I attribute their success in, in breaking the Gothic line and then in moving so quickly and pushing the Germans into the Po River Valley all the way up to Lake Garda where Mussolini had his villa. I attribute that to that incredible fitness, both physical and psychological, that they had developed over the course of those years during their training first at Fort Lewis and then at Camp Hale. But when they hit the Gothic line, they broke it and they proceeded to roll over the Germans like a tsunami. They rolled so fast that the US Army's Fifth Army, which had been charged with resupplying them, couldn't keep up. And their success and their tenacity resulted in 
Germany's surrender of Italy. And that was soon followed by the victory in Europe Day. And those 10th Mountain Division soldiers then went up into the Alps, <laughs> into um, the Julian Alps on the border between then Yugoslavia and Austria and, and Italy and proceeded to go climbing <laughs> because that's all they wanted to do. And so that's where the story got really interesting. Well, not got interesting, but remained very interesting for me because a number of those soldiers who had come all the way through the 10th Mountain Division then went up into the Julian Alps to go climbing. And part of it was work because we still hadn't defeated Japan. And so the thought was that the soldiers would then be deployed to fight in um, either Alaska or the Lucian Islands, but fighting Japan, they went and they were climbing there. Um, and then, of course, when they shipped back to the U.S., we had already won the war. And so they began to fan back out into the mountains that they'd fallen in love with. This is Kurt Repinchek. We've been talking with Christian Beckwith today, a veteran alpinist and climbing historian who's researched the origins of the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division and its successes during World War II. We're going to be back with Christian next week to discuss what happened with the 10th Mountain Division after the war and what they did when they came back to the United States. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll return with Christian to discuss how the end of World War II spurred a revolution in outdoor recreation in America as the soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division returned to the mountains they loved so much. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.